Uh, Would you take your copy of God's Word today and join me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 26 this morning? Matthew's Gospel chapter 26, while we have been in between uh, series from uh, Kings moving toward Ezra, I've been doing some standalone sermons uh, each Sunday morning, but Lord willing, very soon we'll get to the book of Ezra. Uh, But today I want to speak to you about the weight of Gethsemane. You know, sometimes the message that that God lays on my heart is directed more toward, um, I don't want to say more toward us than the Lord, but in application, certainly more toward us. And then there are times God will put a message on my heart where there's not a great deal of personal application for us, but it's just the beauty and the power and the weight of the passage of Scripture that draws us to a deeper walk with the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at this morning is a, is a, a section in the Scripture I would say over the course of my ministry I've probably preached or referred to these passages, I'm going to say maybe hundreds of times in the course of my ministry. We all know this scene. And to me, it is one of the most precious scenes, and I would say this to all of us. If you ever go through a time in your life where you are, are given to become negative or critical, I would go back and read the scene that we're going to read today. If you ever need a time in your life where you need kind of an attitude adjustment and get recalibrated, I would read the scene that we're going to look at today. If you ever go through a time where, where you just get a little bit cynical toward life, and you have a tendency to look on the negative, or maybe you're just discouraged and depressed, I would say go to the scene that we're going to look at this morning and just read it and let the words of God wash over you. And I'll tell you, if you don't come away with a renewed spirit, something's definitely wrong. Let's look at it this morning. I want to speak to you about the weight of Gethsemane. Follow with me. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 36. The Bible says, Then comes Jesus with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray yonder. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. He said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. He went a little farther, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. He comes to the disciples, and he finds them asleep, and he said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. He came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. And then comes he to his disciples and he said to them, Sleep on now. Take your rest, behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, behold, he is at hand that does betray me. So may God add his blessings today as we look at the weight of Gethsemane. During the 
Second World War, there was a lieutenant commander, Butch O'Hare, who was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier USS Lexington out in the South Pacific. One day, when he and his squadron took off from the aircraft carrier, headed for a particular mission, he got part of the way to their destination and noticed that his fuel gauge was running on empty. And then whomever was responsible for topping off his fuel tank had not done that. And now he did not have enough fuel to reach the destination to carry out the assignment and to safely return to the aircraft carrier. So he had to drop out of formation and by himself make his way back to the aircraft carrier. And it is said that while he was on his return trip back to the aircraft carrier, that he ran into a squadron of Japanese aircraft headed toward the American fleet. He was all by himself. He could not radio his squadron in time to get them to come and bring some help to him. So by himself, he began a dogfight with this Japanese squadron of fighter pilots. And it is said in the annals of history that one after the other, as he weaved in and out of these airplanes, fighter pilots, that he shot down five Japanese airplanes. His plane itself was shot up, but he safely made it back to his aircraft carrier, and the Japanese went on to a, another location. O'Hare, Butch O'Hare, became the very first ace in World War II. He also became the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. And a year later, he was killed in battle at 29 years of age. His hometown would not let him be forgotten. And today, if you are to fly into Chicago Airport, you are flying into Chicago, what's the name of it, church, you know? O'Hare airport, named after this young man who gave the last full measure of devotion to his country. When we think about those stories of men and women who gave every last measure of life that they had, it always points us back to our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who certainly gave everything that he had to carry out the redemption plan of God the Father for you and I. The Bible says by this we know love because he laid down his life for us of all that Adam lost in the garden of Eden. Jesus was determined to redeem in the garden of Gethsemane. No one in all of human history suffered like Jesus suffered. I would say that it is impossible in human terms to describe the passion of the paragraph that I read to you this morning. The utter, uh, the utter intensity of the scene. We can read the words, and your mind can kind of go to that scene in your mind's eye and try your best to relive what is happening there and, and try to put all the pieces together. But in our finite mind, I'd say we all have a struggle with the full weight of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. So what I want to do this morning for the next little while, I want us to look at how Jesus made his final decision to go to the cross and die for you and I. 
Now, when I say his final decision, now we know that from eternity past, Jesus had decided that he would redeem man. From eternity past, as he was one with God the Father, he had already determined that he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. But now, when you come to the scene of Gethsemane, it is the last few hours of his life, and he is faced with one final decision. Do I go through with this plan or not? And it's like the full weight of Gethsemane's Burden was laid upon his shoulders. So if you take notes, the first thing I want you to jot down is, first of all, Gethsemane was a place of tremendous pressure. A place of tremendous pressure. Notice verse 36 says, Then comes Jesus with them, that is his disciples, to a place that is called Gethsemane. The word itself means olive press. It is a place where not only filled with olive trees but a place where those olives would be taken and run through the press where they would be crushed to retrieve the oil, the olive oil that would be made from them as those olives would be put under tremendous pressure. And right here, Jesus himself and his disciples go to this garden, a place of tremendous pressure. In this garden, Judas Iscariot kisses Jesus on the cheek and sells him for 30 pieces of silver. In this garden, Peter takes his sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest and says, Lord, I'll be willing to even die for you. But in just a little while, Peter would stand by the devil's fire, the praetorium, and swear that he doesn't even know who Jesus is. In this garden... Jesus struggled with his destiny of going to the cross. The context is it's approximately midnight on Thursday, the last Thursday of his life. The three years of his earthly ministry are now winding down and coming to a close. In fact, if you, if you were to divide up the earthly ministry of Jesus, you'll find that it, it falls into a number of categories, primarily three that scholars have given us. One is called the Galilean ministry, which was an 18-month stint, which was the longest portion of or section of his earthly ministry. It started after his baptism, and it was primarily around the area of Galilee. It is there where he would feed the multitudes. It is there where he would heal the sick. It is there where he calmed the storm, where he walked on the water. All of that was during a part of time that was called his Galilean ministry. From there, he would go on to what was called his Judean ministry. And during the Judean ministry, it was about a three-month period of time. And during that time, it would be the first time that he would tell his disciples that he's going to die and then rise again the third day. So from his Galilean ministry to his Judean ministry, there is what's called the Perean ministry where he comes over the brow of Jerusalem and he looks out over the expanse of that incredibly religious city. And the Bible says he begins to weep over the city because it was the most religious place in the world. And they knew a lot about religion and they knew a lot about the law and they knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. And Jesus viewed them as sheep without a shepherd. And he cried that day, 
and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen would gather its chicks under its wings, but you would not. I sent you the prophets, and you would kill the prophets. And Jesus would weep over the destiny of that city. So when he comes to this place of pressure, Gethsemane, his Galilean ministry, his Judean ministry, his Perean ministry, they're all behind him now. All the miracles are behind him now. The teaching is behind him now. And he has come to this place Filled with pressure. Do you know, <clears throat> all of his life, when Jesus would come to Jerusalem as a young boy, and as he moved into adolescence, and his teenage years, his young adult years, and then his adult years, every year when he would come to Jerusalem during the time of Passover, he would watch the lambs that were offered as a sacrifice. But on this day, he didn't come to watch the lambs. He came as the lamb. As the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Verse number 30 says that his, he and his disciples had finished the Passover meal. They sung a song. We don't know what the song was. Perhaps something from the book of Psalms. But whatever it was... Immediately they leave the upper room, they come across the Temple Mount, come down the slope of the temple and cross what we call the Kidron Valley, back up to the Mount of Olives. I can see it so clearly in my mind because we were there just back in January to this little garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place where he would pray from time to time, where he could get away from the crowds, where he could get away from, from people and he would just steal away into these twisted, ancient trees. And he would pray. A place of privacy. A place of prayer. Do you know the scene that I read to you today? It's the last time that Jesus would be together with his men before he would go to the cross. So it's a very epic moment, a very, a very climactic moment, if you will. Look in verse number 36 again. He comes with him to a place called Gethsemane, Olive Press. This was a place of pressure, and he said to them, Sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Now you have to remember that the other gospel writers also write about this same scene. But each writer gives a few additional details. So I may refer to some things that you may not see in this particular Matthew's account, but you will find it in Luke's account or Mark's account or even John's account. All right? So the sons of Zebedee, those are who? Or that's who? That's James and John, right? The other gospel writers actually named them for us. But the Bible says that he took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and heavy. Verse 38. And he said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death, so tarry you here and watch with me. Now this was a place of great pressure. Internal pressure. You see that word or those words? I'm exceedingly sorrowful. It is a word of external pressure. He said, I'm sorrowful even Unto death. 
And as he comes into the entrance of this garden, he says to his men, you guys wait here and I'm going to go a little deeper into the garden and I'm going to pray to the Father. And as he leaves his disciples there, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. These are the three guys that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. These were the guys who were with him when they, he raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And it seems like they're a little closer to Jesus, but he brings them a little deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. We don't really know why. Maybe it's because he needed their companionship. Maybe it's because he saw them as leaders of the disciple band and he wanted them to go back and tell the other disciples what they witnessed. But the scripture says he began to be sorrowful and heavy. You may want to circle that word sorrowful. You see it verse 37. You see it again in verse 38. It comes from a Greek word that means to be, listen carefully, to be horrified. It is not just that he was he was under the immense pressure of knowing that he was going to go to the cross. But he experiences something under the weight of Gethsemane that literally horrifies him. You say, well, Pastor Darrell, I thought the Lord knew everything from beginning to end. There's no doubt, but when Christ walked this earth, he placed upon himself certain limitations. They were self-imposed limitations. We know that he was God in the flesh. He was Emmanuel, God with us. But in his, his earthly body, he was limited to being in one place at one time. So he gave up voluntarily some of his divine attributes without ever ceasing to become God. So here... Of course, he knew from eternity past that he was going to go to the cross. But here in Gethsemane, in my estimation, he sees something for which he had not seen before. That had not been revealed to him as God the Son. And the scripture says that he was horrified. I'll tell you a little bit about that as we move on. But look in verse 39. And you know this story. He went a little farther and he fell on his face. And he prayed. If you read the gospel account of Luke, Luke says he kneeled. And what we, what we believe happened is this, that he began his prayer in a kneeling position. And as he became more intense in his prayer, and the weight and the pressure of what was about to happen in his life, knowing in just a little while he would feel that kiss of Judas, the soldiers would arrest him, he would stand before Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas and ultimately go to the cross. And he was under all of this weight and under all of this pressure. He moved from the kneeling position in prayer and he fell on his face. Doesn't that fill you with humility to think about Jesus <clears throat> laying face down in the dirt the one who created this world and the beauty of this world, lying face down in the dirt under the pressure and the weight of Gethsemane. The Bible tells us that there was a lady that was brought to Jesus one day who was caught in the very act of adultery. And the religious leaders brought her to Jesus and they said to him, the law says that she should be stoned. What do you say? And they were trying to trap him. And the scripture says, you remember this story? That he just stooped down and with his finger he began to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. He just wrote like he didn't even hear them. And the Bible says that he stood up 
looked at the accusers, stooped back down again, and began to write something else in the sand. And whatever he wrote was so convicting that the people dropped their stones as they were going to stone this lady, and they left. And when Jesus stood back up, he looks at the woman and he says, where are your accusers? And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's the only times we see him writing in the dirt. In John chapter 9, he took a little handful of dirt and he mixed his saliva with it and he made a paste and he put it on the blind man's eyes and healed his eyes. So you see him picking up dirt, writing in the dirt. But now here's the Son of God face down in the dirt, praying. In the Garden of Eden, God took a handful of dirt to make mankind. And now here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is face down in the dirt preparing to redeem mankind. See, it only took a little bit of dirt to make us. But don't you know it took the life's blood of Jesus to redeem us and to buy us back from the slave market of sin. So he moves from this kneeling position in prayer as the intensity boils in his prayer and he finds himself falling face first under the pressure and the weight of Gethsemane's garden. It was a place of tremendous pressure, but secondly, it was a place of intimate prayer. He says in verse number 39, notice, he said to them, he says, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. And he went a little further, fell on his face, prayed, saying, look at this, intimate prayer. Oh, my Father. You might want to underline that. He says it in verse 42. He goes the second time and prayed, saying, oh, my Father. And then though it's not, though it's not specifically spelled out in verse number 44, we know that he says it a third time because the Scripture says, he prayed the third time saying the same words, Oh, my Father. Three times in this prayer, Jesus refers to God as my Father. Do you know in the New Testament, Jesus referred to God as his Father more than 150 times? Yeah, you can read it for yourself. Now, this was a total foreign concept to the Jewish people. They believed God would be their national father, that he's kind of the father of Israel, but they had no concept of God being intimate and personal. But when Jesus prayed, he prayed, Oh, my father. Let me show you. This is, this is Mark's account. Turn over a few pages. Go to Mark chapter 14. If you're listening, say amen. Mark chapter 14, look in verse number 35. Same scene, same story, Jesus' agony in, in Gethsemane, but it's just recorded by the pen of Mark rather than Matthew. Mark 14, look in verse 35. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, now look at this, you might want to circle this or underline this. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Look at that phrase, Abba, Father. It is the word for daddy. Do you see the intimacy in which Jesus is praying? 
that it is not just God who is the father of the nation of Israel, but with his face in the dirt and the pressure of Gethsemane and the cross bearing upon him, in intimate prayer, he says, Oh, Daddy. Something the Jews had no idea about. And, it's, and as you read this, you, you almost get the scene, or at least I get the feeling, that Satan is just trying to rip Jesus apart from the Father. That he's just trying to tear them apart and separate them. But right here in the intimacy of this prayer, with his face blowing out the dirt on the ground, he says, Daddy, as he prays for me and for you. I said that Jesus called God Father over 150 times. But do you know, do you know every single time that he prayed in the New Testament, he referred to God as Father? Every single time, except one. You know when that was? It is when he was on the cross, and he prayed, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't call him his father then, because it is a picture of absolute abandonment and isolation that God would turn his back on his own son, Jesus. And he wouldn't call him from the cross, Daddy, or Father. Because in that moment on the cross, he was taking my place. He was covering my sin. He was dying for your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness and paying the sin debt of the world. And God cannot look upon sin. And as Jesus became my sin and yours, God would turn his back on him and Jesus would be totally abandoned there on the cross. And say, why have you forsaken me? Go back to Matthew for a moment. Look in verse number 39 again. Matthew 26, verse 39. Notice as he prays, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what you will. And he comes to the disciples, you know this story, and he finds them asleep. And he says to Peter, he says, could you not watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. He says, you've got good intentions. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And he went away the second time. And he prays it again, oh, my father. If this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. It's really a prayer of, of resolution. It is a prayer of resignation, if you will. That God, whatever you want is what I'm willing to do. That's a tough prayer to pray. Let me say that again. To reach a place in your life where we say, God, whatever you want, that's what I want. You see, when we pray for a sick loved one, what are we asking God for usually? That they get better. It is tough to pray, God, whatever you want. And what you want may be to heal my loved one in heaven, but it sure is hard to pray that, isn't it? We know what we want. We know what we want God to, to do for us. And sometimes it's not easy to pray and ask God and say to him, Lord, what you want is what's best. And that's what I want. Because we know that what he wants may not be what we are going to get. 
or, or what we want. We want what we want. And we want to get what we want. And it's just hard to pray those prayers of resignation. It's just hard to pray those prayers of surrender. But yet that's what Jesus does. Three different times, each time with more intensity and more intensity and more intensity, each time he's praying, if it is possible for the plan of redemption for the human family to be carried out any other way other than me going to the cross, he says, then let this cup pass from me. Now this is, this is very interesting when you read this text. The Bible pictures the wrath and the judgment of God as a, as a cup, if you will. All right? Now, it's also pictured sometimes as, as the blessing. For example, communion. When we take communion, this is the cup in the New Testament. In my blood, he says, this do in remembrance of me. We know that is the cup of blessing. But there is also what is called the cup of God's judgment or the cup, cup of God's wrath. And what Jesus was referring to when he says, let this cup pass from me, was a scripture in Isaiah 51. Listen to this. The Bible says, awake and stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the last hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunken the dregs of the cup, trembling, and wrung them out. What did Jesus see in that cup, if you will? Remember I told you he said that his soul was sorrowful, and it literally means horrified. What did he see in that cup? He saw all the sin of all of the world and God's judgment toward that sin. No wonder he was horrified. He saw not only the sin of the world, but he saw in that moment under the pressures of Gethsemane's garden as he is praying through this pressure in this intimate moment with God as he looks into the wrath of God he sees not only the sin of every person but he will see the only time in eternity that the Father and the Son will be separated. You see, Jesus suffered physically. Yes, we know that. He also suffered emotionally, but it was the spiritual suffering. He and the Father have always been one. And now here in this moment when he would pay the sin debt, he's going to be torn, if you will, or separated from the Father. And that's what horrified him. That's why he looked into that cup and he saw all of the wrath that would be poured out on all of humanity for all of eternity. And if he was going to take that to redeem us, knowing that it would separate him from the Father, he said, oh, Daddy, if there's any other way that this can be done, then let it come to pass. But if there's no other way, I'll drink it. Uh, I told you that, uh, that the Bible says he began this prayer kneeling, and then he falls on his face, and he, he is praying with his face in the dirt. But it's even more intense. Turn over to the Gospel of Luke and look in chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Again, if you're listening, say amen. I want you to stay with me. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22. This is the same scene now recorded not by Matthew, not by Mark, but this time by Luke. And Luke gives us some additional details. Luke chapter 22, verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. Look in verse 44. And being in agony, 
He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine that kind of intensity? Where his garment is saturated, and the Bible says his sweat was like great drops of blood. Matthew doesn't talk about that. Mark doesn't talk about that. John doesn't talk about that. Isn't it interesting that the only one who talks about that is Luke? What was Luke's um, occupation? He was a doctor. And he seemed to be captivated by the fact that Jesus moves from this kneeling position to on his face to where he is praying in such an intimate and intense manner that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood. It It is an incredible scene. It's thrombos. In the Greek, it's where we get our word thrombosis, and it means blood clots. And scholars would say that he actually began to have blood clots that would come from his body and soak up his garment and drip from the limbs of his body and pool up in that dirt where he was to redeem mankind. And it was almost killing him. And he was saying, if there's any other way Now, he's not trying to necessarily avoid, or not at all, he's not trying to avoid redeeming us, but what is he trying to avoid or would like to avoid is a separation from the Father. And he says if there's any other way to make it happen, any other way that we could be saved, let that happen. But if not, I'll be willing to drink this cup. In fact, He is in such a weakened condition. Verse number 43 says that an angel from heaven came and strengthened him. That is, is, we take this to mean that he was literally close to death. And perhaps, some scholars have said, perhaps he may have died had God not dispatched an angel from heaven to strengthen him until he could go to the cross. Remember I said to you as I opened up this sermon, if you ever get a bad attitude, go back and read. Matthew 26. You ever start grumbling or complaining? Go back and read Matthew 26. You ever get a little cynical or bitter? Go back and read Matthew 26. I'm telling you, it'll just calibrate your life, won't it? When we get the focus off of ourselves and we put it on the Lord and we see Jesus crying out, saying, Daddy, I don't want to be separated from you. But I do want to redeem the world. But if there's any other way other than us being separated, let that happen. But if not, I'll be willing to do it. That's why we sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. And he had no tears for his own grief. But sweat drops of blood for mine. He took my sins and my sorrows and he made them his very own. He bore this burden to Calvary. And he suffered. And he died alone. What's that chorus? How marvelous. How wonderful. And my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You know, the author of the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, says this. 
Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now listen carefully. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of God. Did you catch that? Remember, he looked over in that cup and he said he was horrified at what he saw. So what does the writer of Hebrews mean? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? The joy would come when he would look down through the ages of how the sin debt would be paid for everybody who would come to him by faith. It brought him joy to know that you would receive him as Savior. It brought him joy to know that you'd, you, would be, you would be accepted by him. It brought him joy to know that you and I would be part of his family forever and forever and forever because he was willing to drink that cup of God's wrath and judgment. For the joy that was set before him, the joy that men and women and boys and girls would not have to spend an eternity, eternity separated from God but could be reconciled and united with God. So he took that cup of judgment and he was willing to drink it because it was a place of tremendous pressure at Gethsemane. It was a place of intimate prayer at Gethsemane. And then finally, I want you to note that it was a place of surrendered priorities. Again, if you'll go back to Matthew 26, we're going to bring this to a close. Notice what the scripture says in verse 39. He goes a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, Father, if it's possible, let this cup Pass from me. Now look at this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He says it basically again later on in verse 42. Thy will be done. Let me give you three words to write down about that, okay? Just write these words down. It'll help us all when we go through these moments of Gethsemane experience. Write down the word obedience, the word surrender, and the word trust. As Jesus is face down in the dirt with his blood-soaked garments, and he's calling out to his daddy, he says, in absolute obedience, whatever you want, that's what I want. Fully and completely obeying God's plan. He completely surrendered to God's perfect plan. And he completely trusted the will of the Father. There will be times when you may find yourself in the olive press of Gethsemane and you pray and you pray and you pray because you know how you want things to turn out. But there are times you just simply have to say, God, your will be done. In this moment, <clears throat> Jesus makes this epic decision. In this pressure of Gethsemane, in this prayer of intimacy, it becomes a place of surrendered priorities where he says, it's not what I want, it's what you want. It's however you work this plan out, and if it means that you and I will be separated, I'm willing to be separated so that we would not be separated. And he fully surrendered. And in that moment, as he surrendered, as he surrendered to the will of God, the final chapter of God's plan for the redemption of humanity began to unfold. The soldiers came into the garden. 
They arrested him. They took him immediately to his trial. He had six trials in one evening on his way to the cross. He was strapped over a Roman whipping post and brutally flogged. His clothing was ripped from his body and he was nailed to the old rugged cross of Calvary. But I want you to know that it was not the crucifixion that killed him. It was not the nails in his hands and feet that killed him, the spear wound in his side that killed him, or the crown of thorns that killed him. Because nobody took his life from him. I want you to know he freely laid it down for us. Everything that he had. Greater love. I read it to you before we started this morning. Has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friend. And Jesus said, I have called you friends. Following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, <clears throat> his body was brought from Washington, D.C. to his home state of Illinois. And as the funeral procession was passing through street after street after street, the streets were lined with people who would come to pay their last respects. And here was the man who helped to free the slaves, who was willing to give his life so that others would have a better life. And it is said as the funeral procession, horse-drawn casket was drawn down the streets of Albany, New York, that a, that a black lady picked up her child and held her child up over the crowd and said, Look, honey, he died for you. And as we come to this moment, as we make an invitation and make an appeal for folk to respond to the claims of the gospel, I just want you to be lifted up today and look at Jesus in a fresh way and know that he died for you. He died not to just give us heaven, but he died so that we could have life here, for a while anyway, the abundant life, so marriages could be healed, so families could, that are broken can be put back together, so lives that are addicted can be broken free. He died that we would have life. Eternal life is just gravy, isn't it? It will be there forever and forever and forever. But he bore our sins and our sorrows, made them his very own. So that you and I could be free.